So the um, the four tasks and the eightfold path, or the uh, the eightfold path is of course the fourth of the tasks, are the kernel of the Buddha's teaching. This the content of his very first uh, discourse, and they form a feedback loop. That's the important thing. There is the the four tasks of the eightfold path um, take us. Uh, not so much round and round in circles, but r- up around and around a spiral going upwards. And the issue then for us is how do we adapt the, this practice based upon these fundamentals today? And so uh, what I want to do is start off and look at it historically as um, we should if we're going to take secularity seriously. So around, as most of you are aware, at around 400 BCE, the Buddha died aged 80. And he'd been teaching for 45 years uh, and he had a very large following in uh, the Ganges Basin, the areas both um, south and north of the Ganges River. And his following was made up of women and men, uh, of renunciants and householders from all walks of life. He himself had been born in a small uh, republic, the Republic of the Sakyan people. It was an oligarchical republic, uh, so while it had a, um, uh, a caste system, nonetheless, those who were um, part of the Kshastrian caste, like himself, were involved in running the community on a participatory basis or a conciliar basis, from, in other words, in a council. So there was a sense in which uh, decisions were taken uh, by people meeting as equals and thrashing things out. This is what um, in, uh, later became known from the Greek tradition and uh, the tradition of the French Revolution as civic republicanism. So uh, that was the Buddhist basic idea of how you organise things, was on this civic republican basis of people meeting in a, in what we would call today a flat organisation uh, and thrashing things out as equals discussing uh, uh, in a quite robust way uh, what sort of decisions should be made. Um, and that is how he organised his small bands of renunciant followers. They, uh, they gathered together in small groups. Everyone was equal. There is no Pali word for abbot or boss cocky, because there weren't any. And um, uh, they lived, they owned nothing. They didn't have to spend uh, hours and hours in committee meetings um, you know, administering administering assets because they didn't have any assets. And uh, they basically lived under the uh, protection and with the resources given to them by some small-time monarchs in other parts of uh, the Ganges area. Uh, And apart from that, they uh, were semi-feral in their way of life. Uh, Always running off to the forest. Uh, They spent a lot of time outdoors. They needed very little, and what they did need, they were given as a process of dana. 
And so uh, they could, um, you know, buck the system in a lot of ways. So the Buddha himself demonstrated uh, considerable disrespect for the caste system and the gender system uh, of his time. Now, um, over the, over the um, long period of 45 years that the Buddha was an active teacher, uh, there were hassles turned up in communal life and he um, advised uh, communities that were having a, having a problem how to deal with that. So out of that came a bunch of ad hoc rules for specifically for the renunciant communities and these were uh, later compiled into the Vinaya, the monastic rule, um, which um, had very humble beginnings like that. It was very ad hoc, it was just pragmatic, um, but uh, it was later enshrined as, uh, the, uh, as the second of the three baskets of the Pali Canon. And for his, for his uh, followers in general, he simply gave them five ethical principles to live by. The five ethical principles are universal friendliness, generosity, contentment, and the de- development of mental clarity. Really, you know, if you want to translate the five precepts into positive form, which is a really good idea, um, that's what the ethic was. And it wasn't a morality. A morality is a is a book of rules, a code. So the Buddha is saying, forget about that. Let's just look at what is of fundamental importance uh, in leading uh, a worthy and dignified life. Um, so um, what that ethic demands of us really depends upon the uh, social and historical and cultural context in which we live. The other thing is that, except during the rainy season, the Buddha was constantly on the move. He was visiting um, the uh, visiting his uh, small communities. The usual routine, except in the rainy, rainy season, was uh, the Buddha and uh, a group of people who would be travelling with him uh, would come to a town. They'd set up camp on the outskirts of town, in parklands on the outskirts of town, and then people could come along and uh, and talk to him. You know, they could um, they could try and raise philosophical issues with him, uh, but a lot of the time they were raising existential issues with him. You know, they've got this particular problem. It's a burning problem. What do you reckon, Mr. Buddha? Um, and he he give an answer. So all that we've got in the in, in the suttas in the discourses are really performance pieces that have been unrehearsed. They are highly contextual, highly situational. Um, the Buddha and, and in quite a few cases, some senior disciple the Buddha uh, trusted would give an answer that was off the cuff um, and, uh, and appropriate to that particular hearer, that particular questioner. And uh, if you read in those sort of, you can see that a lot of those um, uh, 
conversations were what we would call today frank and fearless. There was there, there wasn't a lot of uh, grovelling and you know never question the teachers. None of that was going on. Uh, this was um, uh, quite uh, argumentative kind of stuff, and it was often the argumentative nature of it that brought out the sharper points of Dharma. Uh, now, uh, and, and that is really the nature of the discourses we have today. Uh, and it's worth, you know, looking at them and seeing where there were arguments, where there was <laughs> some characters being abusive uh, and so forth. That was really what gives the sort of their, uh, their life and their immediacy uh, and their spiritual pointedness. Now, in the centuries following uh, the Buddha's death, all this changed. Buddhism became organised as a religion and it took on the trappings of a religion like any other. So the semi-feral feral, uh, renunciants living in small groups morphed into uh, monks living in very large-scale institutions, uh, often in rather big buildings or, or big clusters of buildings, uh, and they had hierarchies. Uh, you know, uh, somehow they figured out um, what to call abbots because abbots uh, appeared and um, all sorts of ranks. So if you think of total institutions, institutions in which people live uh, 24-7, what do we get? We get um, monasteries, not just Buddhist monasteries, obviously, Christian, etc. We get armies, uh, we get prisons, uh, we get asylums, <laughs> and so on. So this is a very different institutional and cultural setting in which uh, the Dharma continued to, uh, to develop. Uh, so um, because... Uh, Monks and it were, and especially in the in Southeast Asia, in fact, right throughout Asia, uh, at the beginning, it became somehow it became a more or less exclusive male domain, um, and uh, the monk became somehow the normative practitioner. It's worth thinking about this idea of of norms, you know, what, what defines what is normal and what is desirable. And so instead of uh, the sort of practitioner we see, we encounter in the Pali Canon, the, uh, the normal practitioner was a monk, male, celibate, highly regimented, living in a total institution. Um, a very different situation to the Buddha's first followers and a very different situation to ours now. Um, and uh, what also happened in that process was that the Buddha's off-the-cuff, ad hoc, highly situational teachings were essentially displaced by uh, a very uh, ambitious attempt by monks, by scholar monks, to produce a codified version of the Dharma called the Abhidharma. 
Now, the, the hubris in this exercise uh, can be seen from the, the name Abhidharma. Abhidharma means the higher teaching. Higher than what? Ah, <laughs> it's a somewhat embarrassing answer. Higher than the Buddha's own teaching and those of his trusted uh, disciples during his lifetime. So those practices and those doctrines that have come to define organised Buddhism or institutional Buddhism come through the Abhidharma uh, and through applications of the Abhidharma to things like meditation practice, uh, like vipassana practice in, in, the, in the Theravada. So uh, they're not, they haven't been designed uh, around the life, uh, the, the ways of life of people like us, and they haven't, um, and they haven't um, been designed uh, for people who are leading our kinds of lives. And so that, of course, raises a question of how we should, um, how we should now uh, retrieve the original tradition, the beginnings of the original tradition, and how we should then um, set about devising a form of practice that is not based upon fundamentally false assumptions about how we live. And it means also that we need to seriously question the idea uh, that the monk represents the normative practitioner. Um, you know, it, it, the, 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 simply the gender aspect of that is really important. I mean, we, these days we, um, most of us, as part of our uh, adherence of Western culture, ha have a, a, an implicit moral philosophy of our common humanity. And yet, you know, here was a tradition that was growing up uh, and was consolidating in a way that was excluding 50% uh, of, um, of the human species. And it's still there, you know, the, the male norm is still, is still in there, it's still in our culture in general, although under considerable pressure, thank God, but um, it's, still, it's still there, we're still, you know, we never refer to uh, the Australia 11 as a men's cricket team, but we always refer uh, to the Southern Stars as a women's cricket team. So obviously the male norm still operating in our language. The male stands for the universal human and the female represents a deviant kind of exceptional uh, state of being. Uh, but you know, we're a bit on top of that now, um, thanks to feminism, but in terms of the conventional Buddhist world, it's still uh, unchallenged this idea of of uh, the male norm and particularly the monastic the monastic male norm. Uh, the other thing is, um, is that happened is with institutions and this again is a very impolite uh, thing to talk about is power. Institutions uh, generate power within themselves. Uh, there are there's the hierarchy, there's the struggle between you know, the, the rank and file and the leadership and there's also that the leadership of 
big, socially important and uh, powerful institutions like Buddhist monasteries in um, in Buddhist um, in, in traditional Buddhist homelands uh, get involved in uh, political alliances with the uh, temporal rulers and the socio-economic elite, and this makes them uh, very socially conservative, very and, and pursuing values that um, are appropriate to an alliance with uh, people of power in in a society and the kinds of values that they think are important. So there's this, um, in uh, monasticism there is an inherent uh, conservative social and and moral bias. And um, one of the issues with the meditation practices that we raised last night to considerable um, raise a certain amount of ire was the idea that uh, the meditation practices that have been incubated in monasteries uh, have had uh, at, at, le- at least one of their purposes is to uh, is to discipline and to standardise what people do what the monks do and did uh, and what sort of experiences came out of it. So, uh, so measures of attainment in monastic life, measures of attainment of spiritual um, goals or spiritual rank depended upon compliance. So to be compliant was to be spiritually moving along to be non-compliant was to be spiritually immature or not getting it. Uh, and so the experiences of people who are not being compliant were regarded as not meditation. And this is something that's certainly carried through a lot to um, the first and second generation of Western uh, Buddhist meditators, is the idea that there is that there that you can have experiences when you are meditating that are not meditation. Just think about that for a moment. You know, these are medi- these are real experiences, but somehow uh, they're not supposed to be there. And that's not a really helpful way of thinking about meditation, which is to clarify uh, our lives to clarify experience, to give us a sense of what that experience is, the patterns in it, uh, the, um, the overall structure of our experience. So again, uh, for uh, a lay, uh, a lay <coughs> practice community made up of uh, women and men uh, and leading all of them leading complex lives, this sort of practice uh, has to be has to be questioned. And when we look at the Buddha's own main teaching on um, meditation, which and I brushed on this last night, was the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on um, the aspects of mindfulness, which I think is probably the best translation of the title of that um, rather long discourse. Uh, product of the Buddha's mature years. It was one of his late teachings. Uh, 
And so, um, uh, you know, based upon not only his own meditative experience, but also his experience as a meditation teacher, we find that there is none of this, some things are meditation, some things are not meditation. There is no techniques. Uh, there, there's no formulas. Uh, so um, there's a, a whole range of possibilities that the Buddha is putting out there for us to intelligently work through uh, in taking responsibility for the development of our own meditation practice. Uh, at the moment in, in Sydney, in fact, in all three of the um, insight sanghas in Sydney, uh, where they all decided to study the, uh, the Satipatthana Sutta uh, in the one that started Bhagavad Sangha where we've now finished the seventh session on it and it feels like we're running still on the starting block. So it's a, a, it, you know, it is a really fundamentally important text to be, uh, to be looking at and to considering how we can uh, produce uh, how we can manage our meditation practices as insight meditators uh, to uh, take uh, take advantage of what is what is being offered there, and what we see, of course, when we uh, when we meditate with uh, when we let go of this idea of that certain things are not meditation and other things are meditation, when we let go of that and we look at our entire experience we can see it is very complex and layered. And that is because it is refracting uh, a way of life that is complex uh, and layered. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Um, uh, as heirs of particularly of um, Greek philosophy, which emphasised uh, the development of all human faculties, there's nothing, you know, reprehensible about uh, the, way, uh, the way we live in, in that regard. Um, so, so as not to lose the plot as we try to become uh, more aware of this complexity, the Buddha asks us to account for our experience according to a particular um, a particular division of our experience into uh, the physical aspects, what we get through the physical senses, uh, through bodily experience, because we are embodied beings, essentially. Uh, then the second one is feeling tone. Every time you know, one of our senses um, is contacted by an object, a sound, a taste, a, a sight, uh, a touch, a thought. It's the sixth, the mental one. There's a, a feeling tone attached to it. We really need to know what that feeling tone is. We need to be uh, up there for it, aware of it. The third one is uh, emotions and mind states, moods. And the fourth one is what is happening in the cognitive mind. So the Buddha was clearly aware that our experience is extremely complex uh, and this is simply his way, his very pragmatic way of saying you know, if you find yourself stuck in one particular division of that um, 
just give yourself a subtle meditation instruction to check out what's happening in the other spheres of um, uh, of awareness. And this, this is why I've uh, introduced you, some of you have already been introduced to non-formulaic meditation, where you're not going in with a particular technique, but you're simply opening yourself up to your own experience, just as it is. So, in conclusion here, I just want to return to the... Um, to the three great trainings. Now, the three great trainings is a, a useful traditional idea, a way of um, uh, of boiling down the eight folds of the path into three areas of practice. And the um, the first of these is eth- ethics. Uh, the second one is meditation, and the third one is wisdom. So let's just very briefly visit those three great trainings. As already indicated, uh, the Dharma comes with an ethic and not a moral code. So uh, it's the ethic, the concern with what is of fundamental importance to us. What are the principles uh, to which we feel we owe uh, a primary loyalty. And uh, in the, the traditional rite of um, the refuges and precepts, that is absolutely clear in, in the Dharma. You know, I always think people, even, even secular Buddhists in the 21st century, should really seriously thinking about going for refuge. What does it mean? Um, awakening, uh, it means... Uh, a particular approach to awakening and it means the importance of primary community of, of primary spiritual community and the five and that as a result of taking refuge in those three primary loyalties we get to the five precepts and that's it that's um, you know that's where we that's that's the starting blocks that's where we start so we can see that mere compliance with a set of rules is not going to cut it. It's not really what it's about. We, as, uh, as moral agents, we find ourselves constantly in situations that are difficult because you know, moral principles are, uh, clash in that particular situation. Uh, and so we have to learn to um, negotiate our way through and past rules in order to understand what is fundamentally important. Uh, and it requires, therefore, um, this, um, uh, the, this ethic of the five ethical principles to be taken seriously. We need to see uh, with greater and greater lucidity how they apply in any ethically significant situation. And that just does not mean, um, uh, you know, being um, good little girls and boys on an everyday basis, not murdering anyone, you know, giving some money to the bus and so on. It is also about how we are as citizens. And uh, it's worth sort of thinking about the fact that uh, 
those of us who are uh, Australian citizens are citizens of the world's second oldest extant democracy. Uh, we live in a stable, affluent democracy and we have, uh, if we are taking Buddhist ethics seriously, we have serious responsibility to uh, the needs of strangers who have... Um, who are not in our uh, fortunate situation, who are often in, in very dire circumstances. So uh, this means, you know, um, how, we, how we vote, how we behave politically is of ethical significance. Uh, it is also, of course, of primary ethical significance of what, is what, what we are doing to... Uh, in terms of the, uh, dis the maldistribution of food, medicine, clean water, etc., uh, around the world. It's worth reflecting on the fact that in the Buddha's time, um, political and organisational forms had very, very little relevance to how people lived and died. You know, the great uh, misfortunes were famine, uh, disease, uh, earthquakes, uh, droughts, all that sort of stuff. What uh, the insurance industry quietly calls acts of God. Nowadays, it's uh, the great misfortunes uh, that humanity faces are ones largely generated by governments and corporations. Uh, the you know, there, there is enough... The, the planet is capable of producing enough food for everybody and yet a significant proportion of the population is, of the human population is starving. Uh, there are enormous um, numbers of deaths from preventable disease going on because of um, uh, rent-seeking and profit-seeking by pharmaceutical companies and their political power. And so on. You can go through the list. In, during the 20th century, um, it has been calculated that 200 million people were killed by government action uh, outside the context of war. So, you know, genocides and things like that. 200 million. And so we can see that how we are as citizens uh, is now of fundamental importance, fundamental ethical importance in terms of outcomes, in terms of outcomes for uh, human ill-being or human well-being, and beyond that, of course, is the issue of how we're treating other species too. Uh, I guess that all that is, uh, is fairly obvious. So our ethical responsibilities uh, ought to really engage us in many aspects of our lives. It's not just a matter of uh, you know, staying out of trouble in terms of a set of rules. And with meditation, a great deal of what passes for Buddhist meditation today, uh, as I've said, was originally designed to train and, and regiment celibate men living in total institutions and therefore is uh, prime facie not appropriate for people who are living the kinds of lives that we are. 
Uh, and hence we need to, um, to be highly sceptical when uh, approaches to meditation are, uh, are laid before us and told that they are authoritative or that they are uh, the one true way. It's often you know, the sure sign of something bogus going on is when, it's, um, when, when it is presented to you as the one true way to whatever it is, enlightenment, um, rebirth in a heaven realm or whatever it is. Um, so um, we need to forge meditation practices that directly tackle the four tasks that we were talking about last night that um, the Buddha introduced in the first teaching. And, of course, and the four tasks are the ones that embrace the human condition and work with it. So that means, of course, we, have to, we, need, to, we need to master the principles of meditation, and I suggest the best way to do that is to really go deeply into the Satipatthana Sutta. And that will then allow us to manage our own meditation practices intelligently. Third one is wisdom. Um, for in in the Buddhist tradition, this too is a um, is a practice. Wisdom is a practice. It's not uh, having read uh, the complete works of Plato uh, or anything like that. It is really what we are learning from our, our ethical practice and our meditation practice. It's essentially what it is and how we are able to, uh, to um, behave and make decisions in ways that are consistent with what we know to be true for us and for, for our time and place. Uh, so uh, it requires a gentle exploratory receptiveness towards our unfettered meditation practice. And uh, it means giving practical effect to what we learn in these two ways as uh, the core of our, of our Dharma practice. Okay, so I think we'll leave it there and have a well-earned cup of Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.